I want to I introduce my message tonight, uh, not with that. Please put that out of your mind now. With a quote, a quote from Martin Luther King, who's one of my heroes. I, uh, I, I really uh, respect and appreciate uh, MLK for, for the contribution he made to the kingdom of God as well as to our country. And I want to read this quote to you. This is in a, a uh, it's not a speech, but, but a, uh, a document that he wrote called The Role of the Church in Facing the Nation's Chief Moral Dilemma. This was written in 1957, and King says this. But the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. The type of love that I stress here is not eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love, not philia, a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends, but it is agape, which is understanding goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. The uh, term that he uses there in the beginning of that passage, the beloved community, is a term that uh, Dr. King used often. It, it appears in uh, some of his speeches and in a number of his writings. He talked about the beloved community. It's not uh, a term that's unique to him, nor did he originate that term. I actually <coughs> I don't know the origin of the term itself. I do know where Martin Luther King got it, though. <clears throat> he learned that phrase uh, from a man named uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a German theologian and one of a number of German theologians that talked about not only the kingdom, but the beloved community. And I know that because, thank you, sir, not only uh, Niebuhr and those, the other German theologians were influential in King's life. They've also been very influential in the formation and the it developed theology of the Vineyard Movement. Um, and I know that, and they've been influential in the Vineyard Movement because they are of a kingdom mindset. They ascribe to the same kingdom theology that we hold to, and I have learned, as I've, I've uh, read a little bit of King's writings and a little bit about him, that, that Martin Luther King also held that same uh, heart towards the kingdom of God and really believed he's talking here about the end about the kingdom of God coming in breaking into the present the future coming into the present in the same way that that we would and so uh, you, you know I, I reference that and, and here's the thing I, I bring that up tonight for this reason we've been talking about the church I've been doing a series for uh, several weeks now I know we had a break. The last two weeks we didn't because last week we had worship, which is a great time, by the way. If you weren't here, too bad for you. It was awesome. And then the week before that, equally awesome, as Kevin spoke. Great night. Um, so a couple weeks. Uh, but, but although, actually, Kevin's message was on the church as well. But we've been talking about the church, and, and I've been trying to present sort of the question or, or looking at, talking about, um, and I hope some of you have been thinking about the church in, in terms of like, what is the church? Or if anything that I have said is true, not so much what, but who is the church? Who's the church? And, and, and why 
is the, why is it the church, or why, if we are the church, why are we, why are we here? What is our purpose? What's our job? What's our, what's our role in society today? What role, what place does the church play in, in the greater culture? What responsibility do we have towards one another here in this room and in the greater body of Christ if we meet together with people in a room for communion on election day that believe a little bit differently than we do or think a little bit differently than we do or worship a little bit differently than we do? What does that mean? What is that, how does that work? What does that look like? So I, I, I hope that you guys have been thinking a little bit about that. Maybe that's something I've said over this series has stirred you to think about that. What is the church? What, what are we about? What are we for? Why are we here? Um, I, I don't think that uh, I have the answers to that question, those questions. Uh, certainly not all of them. Um, you know, and in fact, here, here I, I would say my, my hope has been in the, in the series more than answer the questions to raise the questions and to get us to think about them. Um, tonight I want to, and I don't know if this will end this series or not. I, I kind of thought it would, but I never know. But here's the thing. I, I don't really think that it ends at all, period, because I, I think we need to be talking about the church. We need to be thinking about what our role is. We, we need to be reevaluating continually what does it mean for me to be a Christian, to be a part of the body of Christ in the world today? How does that fit? What, what, what am I here for? What is that all about? So I, I think that's something we need to be doing in an ongoing way. But, but tonight, I, I guess what I want to really think about a little bit is this. I, I want to talk about, in a, in a roundabout way, I suppose, what a blessing it is and what a privilege it is and how deeply meaningful and important it is to be a part of what Martin Luther King called the Beloved Community. And I, I titled my message tonight, The Beloved Community, for that reason. Just what it means to be able to be a part of that. So two things, and then we'll pray. One is I just I want to give kudos to my friend Roy Conwell. Roy is the pastor of Mountain Vineyard in Kent, Washington. And, you know, talk about people that are different. Roy is just a redneck from the day, from the get-go. He's so different than me, and we just love each other so much. You know, and, and we just share such a heart for God. And I can't tell you how many times we've just cried together because God was just in the middle of a conversation we were having. You know, and like I said, we're just as different as night and day. But I, but I, I say that because two weeks ago when I was at the missions meeting in Colorado, Roy spoke one night. And, and Roy's message was different than what I want to share on tonight, a whole different topic, but he talked about the kingdom of God in such a way that it, if you could, I mean, you guys know me, you know that that's sort of, the kingdom is sort of my passion. If you could get stirred up more than I already am about the kingdom, Roy stirred me up. And so I just, I just thank him for that and for speaking into this message and into my thinking on the church and the kingdom. And then the second thing is, I'll, I'll read the second quote from King and then we'll pray. And he says here, our goal is to create a beloved community. And this will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a quantitative change in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask you to open your word to us tonight, that you would speak to us and that you would cause us to consider the beloved community and to be reminded afresh of how blessed we are to be a part of it. And that you would also allow us the grace to consider what it means to make a qualitative change in our souls 
as well as a quantitative change in our lives to further that community. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to apologize a little bit on the front end because uh, I'm not going to be very theological tonight. And I'm not going to be particularly deep or profound like I usually am. I'm glad that was a joke, so I'm glad you know. Um, tonight's really more of a reflection, it, it kind of a devotion, really. It's, it's sort of a personal devotion I'm going to share with you. Uh, and, and I hope as much as anything, it's an encouragement to you guys. So it's this. I, I have a short text. Our text tonight is one we've looked at already once in this series, but I want to review it and actually reconsider it again tonight. And that is Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. God said, it's not good for man to be alone. The Lord God, God said that. It's not good for man to be alone. The context is important. When and where did God say that? Well, where is in the Garden of Eden? The when is before the fall of man. So Adam is in the garden in a perfect, undefiled, unadulterated, uncorrupted relationship with God in the place of perfection. In, there's nothing. Think about all the stuff that comes between us and our relationship with God. None of it's there. None of it existed. None of it's ever been. And in this place of ultimate perfect communion with God, God said something was not good. It was not good to be alone. It's not good to be alone. The crown of creation, Adam, everything you could ever desire in communion with God, and it's not good to be alone. This, this is my summary on creation up to that point. I believe it was perfect, but not complete. It was perfect, but not complete. And I believe that because Man was created in the image of God, the image of the triune God, and man was created for relationship. Man was created for communion, not only with God, but with other people, and it was not good to be alone. I want to share another quote with you, this time Mother Teresa. We heard from Mother Teresa a couple weeks ago. Uh, I found this. Uh, for a fairly simple little lady, she had a lot to say. I, this is profound to me. See, I don't have to be profound because I can quote profound people. Being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, forgotten by everybody, I think that is a much greater hunger and much greater poverty than the person who has nothing to eat. So here's a woman who committed her entire life to caring for the poor. She gave everything she had to care for the poor, and she says that the greatest poverty, the worst form of poverty, is to be alone. I've, um, I've not completely given up on video clips, although I will say that I'm fearful. Uh, they don't seem to work for me. Kevin does a video clip. It works fine. I bring a video clip. I test it before church. It works fine. I come up here to share with you. It doesn't work. So what I'm going to do tonight instead is I'm going to go old school, and I'm going to read you a bedtime story. 
not the whole story, but a little bit of a story. Now, when my kids were little, I would read them stories at night. Pretty, almost every night. That was our tradition. We read stories at night. Certain books I would read, I would cry. I'm giving myself up right now. And um, so The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein, I don't know if you guys know that. There's a few others. I would cry. So what would happen is I would stop, and they would all be quiet, and then somebody, usually Ezra, would say, Dad's crying. <laughs> so they were, they were with it. But my point in sharing that is that this is one of those stories, and so I'm going to do my best to not cry with you guys. This is not a particularly moving passage, but it is uh, one of those stories. So uh, it's just a disclaimer. Okay, going on. This, this is the, uh, the Velveteen Rabbit. Have any of you read this to your children? If you have not, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, it's a story about a little stuffed rabbit, a little toy rabbit, and uh, he is presented to a young boy as a Christmas present. And, and this rabbit is his favorite Christmas present, but he quickly forgets about it. It gets kind of tossed in the closet and, and forgotten about. And then later in the story, the boy sort of rediscovers the rabbit, and, and he loves the rabbit, and, and, and ultimately through his love, the rabbit becomes real. But the passage I want to read takes place in that interim period when the rabbit's been tossed in the closet and forgotten. And when he's in the closet, he encounters some of the other toys that are there and has a conversation with a toy called the skin horse. The skin horse is very old and very wise and is willing to, to tell the, uh, the young rabbit a little bit about life and how it works. And so that's where we pick up our bedtime story no technical difficulties. What is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the, near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. You get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real, he said. That was a great many years ago. But once you are real, you can't become unreal again. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real happened to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished 
that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. So it's, uh, it's not easy to become real. You might get all your hair rubbed off, which explains some things. Some, some people are more real than others. Just hold that thought there. To be real, it might mean that you get tossed in the closet and forgotten for a season. And, and, and here's the thing. We're all in the process of becoming real. And, and I believe that the formation of the beloved community is that process, that when we come together, we do rub up against each other sometimes, and sometimes we get thrown in the closet and forgotten, and all that stuff happens, and maybe your eyes you know, fall out and all, and all that. But, but it's part of the process of becoming real, you know. Um, in in our, our, our small group literature, and we talk about community and being a small group, and it talks about to know and be known. That's the reason of a small group, to know and be known. And I was thinking that it really, the beloved community is more than that. It is to know and be known, but on a deeper level even than that, it's to, to learn to love and be loved. And, and that's, that's, a, that's not easy. The skin horse was honest. It's, it takes a long time, and it happens bit by bit. And sometimes it really does hurt to, to learn to love and be loved. And, and it's a risk, and it takes an investment. You know, in, 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 in finance, they talk about, uh, investors talk about ROI, return on investment. If I invest this much, what will my return be? How much will I get back? And sometimes in the kingdom of God and in the community and in the process of becoming real, we invest and there's no return. You make an investment in someone and you pour your life out and you give a lot to them and then one day they're just gone. And that does hurt. And look, I get it, okay? It's not like I don't understand and I don't know. I've been at this a long time. I understand. Sometimes it's easier not to. It's easier not to. Sometimes uh, you just don't have the energy or the will or the desire to make that investment anymore. Sometimes you've been tossed in the closet so many times you feel like, you know what, I just don't know if I have the ugh, left in me to invest in another person and to give myself over to another person. It's, it's, it's just too hard to do and sometimes it just feels like it hurts too much. So I, I understand that. You know, I, 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 I do, I get that. But, but here's the thing. If we're going to fully embrace God's kingdom and God's rule and God's reign in our lives, if we're ever going to really learn to love and be loved, if we ever are going to be the beloved community that King talks about, we've got to go through that process. We've got to be willing to make the investment. We've got to be willing to take the risk. We've got to be willing to be hurt another time, if that's what it means. To know and be known, to love and be loved, to, to be touched, to be in communion, to be in relationship, to be recognized, to be connected. All of those things are how we were created. We're created in the image of God. They're, they're in us. They're a part of us. And, and it's, it's fundamental. It's who we are as people to need that, to want that, desire that. We come into this world, we're born with a need to be known and to be loved and to know and to love others. Let me give you an illustration 
You have all, if you don't have young children, have seen young children. And when they are on a playground, is a typical place where you see this in public, but it happens at home if you're home with your kids, and they do something new or they learn something new, what do they say? Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And they want you to see them. And, and, and that's in, nobody teaches them to do that. They just do that because that's inside of them. It's, it's a cry, really, for acknowledgement. It's a cry to be loved. It's a cry for recognition. What they're really saying, they don't know it. They're just saying, look at me. I learned how to do this. But what they're really saying is, is look at me. Am I important? Am I special? Am I unique? What am I worth? Who am I to you and in this world? Am I worth the time of day for you to stop what you're doing and, and look at me and acknowledge I'm here? That's what they're saying, and that's in all of us. Now, we realize, you know, if, if that goes unfulfilled, that can become idolatrous in our lives. It can. And we can try to fulfill that in, in bad ways. And we've all seen, we've all seen uh, celebrities, maybe people we've known, go to extreme things to try to fill that need. You know, I'll be honest, a few years ago, Britney Spears, you know, melted down and shaved her head and did all kinds of crazy things. And, and I don't even, I don't know her from anybody. I don't even like her music. But I wanted to find her and hug her and say, it's okay, you don't have to do this. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to do this. He's already looking at you. It's tragic when that happens, but at its core... At the heart of it, that need really is created by God in us. And we all long to be recognized and to be acknowledged. And it, it really is. Mother Teresa is right. It's the worst form of poverty. It's the worst. Worse than being hungry is feeling as though you've been forgotten and, and unloved. When I was in high school in the 70s, a movie came out. It was not a major feature film. It was a little short film. I, I think it was about 20 minutes long. It was actually produced by Brigham Young University. But a lot of youth groups saw it. That's where I saw it. That's how I remember it. it was, they showed it in our youth group. And uh, it was called, uh, it was based on a, a short story, a true story, written by a teacher uh, named Gene Miser. And the, the name of the story was Cypher in the Snow. Anybody? No, I'm drawing a complete blank. I, I assumed. There's only about four people in the room old enough to actually remember that. It is still available, though. You can see it on YouTube, and I, you might want to watch it later. Cypher in the Snow. Cypher is an, a non-entity. Someone with no identity, no name, no face. A, a, a non-entity. Cypher in the Snow. Gene Miser was a math teacher in the state of Idaho. True story. I can't remember if he was middle school or high school, but somewhere in that kind of zone, uh, math teacher. And the story, he wrote, he wrote the story... Uh, he's a character in the story, but he wrote it. And it's about a boy named Cliff Evans. And Cliff Evans was a, a shy kid, kind of an introverted, sort of shy little kid. And they looked back over his school records and could see even when he was in kindergarten, first grade, how he was, he was a little bit withdrawn, a little bit shy, but nice kid, friendly, smart, very smart kid. And, uh, but as he got older, for whatever reason, he withdrew a little more and, and got a little, a, a little more isolated. At, at some age, you know, in there, uh, his parents divorced. And his parents divorced, and his father or his mom remarried a, a man who, who didn't love him. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he was abusive, but he certainly wasn't loving towards him. He wasn't kind. And it caused Cliff to withdraw even a little more. And then as he, 
you know, he was kind of picked on at school a little bit. And that was why youth groups showed the movie. It was kind of a very early sort of anti-bullying kind of film. And I don't know if he was bullied in the classic sense, but he was certainly made fun of at school, mostly just for being quiet. Mostly just for being quiet. He was a quiet, shy kid, really, really withdrawn. So uh, it's a winter morning in Idaho, and he's on the school bus on his way to school. This is the 60s when it happened, so this would never happen today, but it did then. True story. He goes up to the bus driver, and he says, hey, I, I want to get off here. And the bus driver says, I thought you were going to school. He goes, no, I, I just, please, I need to get off here. So the bus driver stops and lets him off. Now, again, I don't think that would ever happen today, but the bus driver lets him off the bus. So the young man gets off the bus, he walks about 10 feet away, and he falls down in the snow, dead. And so they, of course, the bus driver sees that, the car behind the bus, the man comes out, they all run over, and the bus driver goes, who is, who is, who is he? Uh, you know, he you, you didn't know his name, of course, he's just the bus driver. Uh, the other kids on the bus were there, and they go, ah, I don't know, uh, I've seen him at school, but nobody, nobody knew him. Nobody knew him. So they go to his file at school, and they pull it out, and he had written something, uh, I don't know what it was, a paper for some class, and in the paper he said that this Mr. Miser, the math teacher, was his favorite teacher. So they called Miser in, they said, hey, tell us about this kid, he was, you were his favorite teacher, and he goes, um, gosh, I, yeah, I think he was in my class maybe, maybe last year or the year before, I, I, I'm not sure, I, I, th- I think I helped him with his homework once. And he goes, well, they, the, the, the principal said, well, we, we would like you to write the obituary for the school paper because apparently, according to him, you knew him better than anybody else. And so Miser began to interview people around the school, and he found out that no one knew this guy. No one knew him. When they planned his funeral service, they couldn't find this is a high school kid couldn't find 10 people who knew him well enough to even be willing to go to his funeral. The autopsy report came back, and of course, he was perfectly healthy. There was no known cause of death. He just dropped dead. And so in the story, you know, Gene Miser is a teacher. He's a math teacher. He's not a doctor, a scientist. But he concludes that he died of loneliness that he died from being unloved. And that was sort of his point. As a teacher, he decided to never let that happen again. I'm going to make sure that no kid ever goes through my class and that they're not known. And he made it his life's goal to know every student. But here's the thing. It's not good alone. Jesus... Jesus knows what Mr. Miser learned, and and, and that is that we're created for community. We're created to know and be known, to love and be loved. King's vision of the beloved community was King's vision. That That was, you know, we think of Martin Luther King in terms of racial equality, and certainly that was a mainstay in his focus in life. But what King's vision really was, was that we would become a beloved community, and that understand uh, in the love of Christ and the love of God that that means goodwill and equality for all people everywhere. And Jesus knew that. Jesus understood that. And Jesus actually does what Mr. Miser said he made his goal to do, which was 
not let anybody be invisible. Jesus went to the invisible people. He loved the invisible people. Jesus spent most of his time with the invisible people. He went to lepers. He went to, to uh, people that were sick, people that were despised, people that were judged, people that were unloved, people that nobody else wanted to be around. That's who Jesus spent his time with. He went to people that were on the outside, and he brought them inside. And, and, and really, in, in a way, he made them the beloved community. He, he made the invisible people the beloved community. He entered into solidarity with those folks, and he made them real. And, he, and here's the thing. We are called to follow that example. We're called to do what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. Uh, so question, who, who are the invisible people in our lives? Who are the invisible people in your life? Who would God encourage you to reach out to and, and to seek out and to talk to that maybe nobody else would? Real quick, I'll try to wrap up quick. I want to go over a couple things some invisible people are more easily seen than others. <clears throat> Powerful passage, Matthew 25, judgment. Jesus is talking about judgment. You guys know it very well, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. He's talking here, of course, about the economic poor. And the economic poor are <coughs> easily seen. We see them all around us. They're on every freeway on ramp on your way to work. Uh, somebody, I was in, when I was in Colorado, I was talking about our food pantry and uh, sharing with a friend about it, what we do, how we do it, so, far, so on and so forth. And he said to me, so how do you advertise? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, how, how do you advertise? How, how, do you, how do people know? I go, we don't advertise. I go, look, if you give away food, people will find you. All right? You don't have to let anybody know. It's that, that is not a problem. You start giving away food, people will show up. I guarantee it. Uh, so the economic poor are all around us all the time. And <coughs> I don't know, you know, thinking of the election, politics, all of that, there are a lot of, di a lot of different opinions on the poor in our country. And I don't know how you feel about the poor. And, and, and quite honestly, uh, this is terrible. I don't care. Maybe, may, maybe it's an inconvenience to you. Maybe it's annoying to you. Maybe you get tired of us asking you to bring food and <coughs> give money to help people that should probably go get a job. Maybe you feel that way. I don't know. I don't, I'm not projecting that anybody. Maybe you feel that way. I know some people do. Um, maybe you think it's good. It's a good thing we do, but I don't really have time. It, you know, it's, I'm busy in my life, so I'm glad our church does that. That's a nice thing, but I don't really have time to do that. I, I don't know where you are in that spectrum of, of thought on the poor. But, but here, here's the thing. Here's the truth. The truth is this, that it's the heart of God. It's the heart of God. And, and, it, and it, is a, it is a raw expression of the kingdom of God. See, in, in that day, when Christ returns and the kingdom of God is fulfilled and it's all that it will be and it's in, it, in its completion, no one will ever be hungry again. And until that day, every time we hand out a box of groceries, 
It's the kingdom. It's the presence of the future breaking into the present. It's the kingdom of God coming on heaven as it is on earth as it is in heaven right then, right there in that moment in that person's life. It's a raw expression of the kingdom of God and it's the heart of God. And that's why we do it. And that's why we'll always do it. And that's why we'll never not do it. And that's why if we don't do anything else, we'll continue to do it. It's, it's making those brothers and sisters in that moment who Jesus refers to as the least of these real. It really is the beloved community. Jesus also said, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Strangers, I, I think, are not necessarily economically poor. In fact, my, my thought, my impression, just, just me, is that more often than not, they aren't economically poor. And I think because of that, they're a little harder to recognize. They may not be on every street corner with a sign asking for help. They, they, they may look like they have it all together, but they might be a kid at school that sits alone at lunch. It might be your neighbor. It might be somebody that you work with who is a stranger. And, and the question again is, you know, <coughs> who are the invisible people? Is there someone around me, God, that is invisible, that is alone, that you want me to reach out to? You know, I, thinking about that movie, The Cypher in the Snow, I, I, I thought about my own high school experience. It's a long time ago, but I kind of remember. You know, and I realized that is not unimaginable. That's not out of the question. I could totally see how there could be a kid at high school that no one knows, an invisible person that nobody's aware of. And maybe God says, hey, you know, you pray and you ask God, speak to me, show me who. Maybe God says, I want you to go sit and have lunch with that kid today. Maybe that's, that's it. Jesus said, I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And again, just the, the question and the thought, who, who are those people? Who, 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 are, who are the people that maybe God's calling me to reach out to? And again, you know, I'm going I'm to try to wrap up. I was going to talk about Father Damien, who was a priest who went to Molokai and worked with the lepers there until spent 16 years there and eventually contracted leprosy and died. And he went there because he wanted to go. He wasn't a son. He went there. And the point was it's a great sacrifice. He, made it, he, he paid the ultimate sacrifice to go. And here's the thing. I don't think God's calling you guys to make that kind of sacrifice. I hope not. I hope none of you get called to make that kind of sacrifice. But, but we're all called to make some kind of sacrifice. We are all called to make some sacrifice, some level of commitment, some level of sacrifice of time, energy, and money to care for those that are invisible, that God's heart is reaching out to. And, and we need to pray and ask God who that might be and how that might be and, and ask God to allow us to see his kingdom and to see the people around us every day and maybe to see the gas station attendant or the gardener or the checkout clerk at the grocery store in a different light and in a different way than you have before. And sometimes I believe this, that, that uh, something as simple as a, a word, remembering someone's name, even a smile, can be an expression of the kingdom of God in the life of a person. And it might, it might change everything. You don't think that. We think big. Think small. It might, it might change everything. I, if, if we do that, here's the thing. 
If we do that, ordinary moments become sacred moments. An ordinary moment and an ordinary day can become a sacred moment infused with the kingdom of God when we open our hearts and we're willing to say, Lord, is this what you want me to do right now? It unlocks the kingdom. It unleashes the kingdom. And here's the thing, not just for that person, but for you as well. This is what I think. I, I, I love the rabbit story, the Velveteen Rabbit, but, it's a little, but it too is incomplete because I think that we also become real in the process of giving and sacrificing and giving love. I think not only the, did the, the rabbit become real, if the story were complete, the boy would become real. And I, and I, I think as much as we bring reality in life to, to the hearts of others, that that's reciprocated and we become real and, and we gain life and we grow in God's presence and kingdom as much as they do by giving of that. So two things I wanted to get across to you guys tonight. One, it's a blessing to be in the body of Christ. It's a blessing to be part of the beloved community. It really is. If you don't recognize that and understand that, you need to because it really is. Be thankful. Thank God that you are here, that you're in church, that you're with people that are part of that beloved community. Two, as much as anything, just rethink the kingdom of God. Rethink the kingdom of God. And, and be, be aware that, that the simplest thing, the simplest little act, uh, I really do believe, even a smile, remembering somebody's name, can change everything. So, we had a lot of quotes tonight, a lot of people we heard from. I'm going to close with one more quote. Um, this is from N.T. Wright. Um, N.T. Wright is a theologian. Anybody read N.T. Wright? A anybody? Kind of? Uh, N.T. Wright is one of the leading theologians in the world today. He's alive. Uh, he's British, but he's alive. Um, <laughs> this is one of his new books called Surprised by Hope. I would actually say don't start here. If you have not read N.T. Wright, read Simply Christian first and then read Surprised by Hope. But this is from a, a chapter in Surprised by Hope called Building for the Kingdom, and we'll close with this and we'll pray. And he says here, Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness... Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That is the logic of the mission of God. So why don't you guys stand? Cindy, you can come up. It's a little bit late, but I just want to pray for you tonight, if I could, for just a second. I won't even make you pray for each other. I'll just pray for you. Here's what I want to pray for you for. I think it, you know, some of us more than others, but on some level we all feel a little bit invisible at times. And I, I, I just want to say, God sees you. And I think some of us grew up with the idea that God was watching, but God was watching sort of like the traffic cop in the sky and he had his radar gun out ready to bust you. But what I want to say is this, God's watching you. He's a loving father watching his kids and he's waiting for you to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. 
just so he can say, good job. Good job. I love you. That's so awesome. You're so great. You you are such a cool kid. I'm I'm so excited to be with you. I'm so happy. See, he, your father delights in you. And so, Lord, I just ask that to whatever measure anyone here feels invisible, that you would cause them to feel the gaze of God upon them tonight. To see your eyes looking at them with a face of love and adoration and just all that you have for them. That you would lift any feeling of emptiness and loneliness and isolation. And Lord, I I pray for those that have been wounded and hurt in the course of loving and grown weary that you would restore those things and allow them to love again. Those that have withdrawn and pulled back, allow them to love again. So let your spirit come. Fill us, Lord. I take it back. If you would like somebody to pray with you, would you just raise your hand real quick? Can I have somebody go over here and pray with me? Anybody else? Anybody else like?